Welcome to the SFTC Consultant Podcast, the podcast where we have open discussions with Salesforce consultants, administrators, and architects. There's been a lot of discussion in the community around Salesforce architects, about the roles, responsibilities, and even their expertise. Today, I'm sharing a conversation that I had with Stacy Clegg, which will hopefully bring some clarification to the subject. Stacy is a managing solution architect at Capgemini in the UK. And we covered the range of subjects in our discussion. We spoke about the responsibilities of a solution architect, the benefits of working at a consultancy, small or large, and her journey towards the architect title. Additionally, if you find this episode interesting, I would really appreciate if you could share this episode with your peers, subscribe to the podcast, and leave us a review. I'm Stacey Click, and I am a managing solution architect within our Capgemini digital customer experience practice. My journey started with, as a lot of people within the ecosystem will say, accidental admin. (laughs) I didn't know, well, actually in my case, it's more accidental super user because we didn't actually have that much control of the system. I was doing a marketing assistant role at a company and they had Lotus Notes solution as their CRM system, which was back in the day. And that was in 2011. And yeah, they just, they, it was a global company and they started rolling out. I was still in South Africa then and they started rolling out Salesforce on a global, global scale. They were using Blue Wolf as a partner, I believe. And they sent me to do some training so I could do super user train the trainer for our South African business units. And they sent me across to the UK to train on the system, which was Salesforce. It was new and exciting. Had no idea what it was about. I did the training, came back to South Africa. I went to a few of our business units within South Africa. I think there were three of them at the time and did super user training as we know it now. So just training people on how to implement the system, how to use opportunities. It was a general sales cloud solution. So opportunities, lead management, et cetera. And I fell in love with it. It was so much easier than what I've been doing before. And it slowly became the best part of my role as marketing assistant was just working within the system. But obviously it was quite frustrating because I was just a super user. So I didn't even have backend access or anything like that. I knew there was so much more you could do with this platform. I could see the power of it. There was so much access. If you went on Google and did some research, you could see that there was so much you could do with it within a year, and I think also because of the growth of the ecosystem, it was probably within about a year that I got contacted by a consultancy and it was, are you, we know you're working with Salesforce. This is an important thing is keeping your LinkedIn profile updated because somehow people always know what's going on. So I got contacted and they said that they were, they were doing a consultancy. They've got a small Salesforce arm. South Africa doesn't have a very big Salesforce side of things or big companies or enterprise scale as we would know it now in in the UK but so it was a small consultancy there were about three consultants that worked there I think that was quite pivotal in my journey um, purely because we did a lot of small medium business implementations and it was the whole life cycle so I was involved in building that relationship with the clients doing the requirements gathering doing the design actually building the solution learning how Apex works, how Visual Force works, understanding the nitty gritty of the 2012 at that point, 2012 
Salesforce platform as it was then, Sales Cloud, Service Cloud platform functionality. So doing a lot of, learning a lot of the point and click and, and what you get from that. And then doing the testing yourself, deploying it yourself, the learning that concept between environments. I think I was still using change sets at that point. So it was quite small scale. And then hosting classroom training for the users. So it was the whole end-to-end solution and then doing the hypercare side of things as well. So making sure that I was available afterwards to do any problem solving or any issues that people were experiencing and then enhancements after that. So it was a full on client experience from the beginning to end, which is quite, I think, fundamental to what makes me a solution architect now was that that fundamental part of the foundations of, of how I learned Salesforce. I then came to the UK and worked with Accenture and that was basically scaling up all of that (laughs) to a whole new level where there's teams doing all these different parts of the process. It's large scale enterprise customers where they've been varying varying ranges of, of industries and customers where they've been using Salesforce for years versus a greenfield implementation. You know, you, I did I did quite a lot of different parts of that. I was with Accenture for about four years, doing different versions of of Salesforce implementations. And yes, scaling up is is the main thing there. I did a variety of roles, so it was technical consultant, delivery lead, solution architect. It depends on you know what project you're on and and how it all works. But a variety of industries, and then joining Cap about a year and a half ago and they have an architecture capability which is great so my focus was obviously I really enjoyed the solution architecture side of things so took the role as solution architect and the focus is more on that beginning part of the journey building the the solution getting that high level vision in place making sure you've you've got a fundamental understanding of the technical parts of Salesforce but also all the business and functional parts um, that are quite important as well. And the, not just the Salesforce stuff, but it's the project stuff. So understanding the delivery life cycle, understanding methodologies, understanding how to put things in place and how to get things going and making sure you're thinking about things properly. You're keeping decision logs and all that stuff, which you, you, you get with experience of, of the end to end part of the whole process. So that's what I'm focused on now. That's a bit of a, physical and also career-wise journey you've had so from south africa to to uk and then back and then back again in terms of learning would you say that the best part of learning for a beginner not really to upgrade your existing knowledge but for a beginner is probably these small consultancies that you basically wear a hundred hats or as many hats as you need basically to deliver a project from start to finish that teaches you the whole Googling teaches you the forms, <laughs> teaches you problem solving, but in the same time, you do everything from, from, from requirements gathering, I guess, up to, like I said, the managed service or, or firefighting after, after go live. Would you say that that's probably the best, the best approach to encompass what Salesforce implementation is, is actually about? Um, I think if you want a role where, you're, where you have a very wide breadth across the platform yes um i think that's that is i mean fundamentally for me that's what made a big difference was understanding all of these different things and and i learn i mean everyone's a bit different so i learn hands-on and being involved in each of those areas and being responsible for it and knowing that i i need to go research the answer to that question if i don't know it that's 
that helped me a lot. It pushed me and, and, and made me gain that knowledge. I know some people might not learn the same way, so it's, it's a bit tough to say, but I think I do advise a lot of juniors who join companies and, and graduates that I've supported over the last few years to do that because having that experience, even if you, know, you do happen to be a graduate in a big institution like an Accenture or a, you know, PwC or whatever, try and get involved in all the different areas of the business. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to work for a small consultancy that gives you that capacity because we are in a space and Salesforce is growing so big that that might not always be a situation you can get into. I was lucky because, you know, South Africa is still very small and very small businesses. Whereas in the UK, it's not, not as easy to, to find those roles. But if you are in a big place, get involved, find out the different sides of the business, make sure you, you understand testing, you understand what it means to deploy something. It's not just you in your little space of I design or I, am, I work with the business or I do just deployments, whatever the case is. It's trying to get that whole breadth of experience. What is the experience of joining a, a top tier, massive cross-technology consultancy? There's no question around the fact that the intensity may be higher than your average job, let's just say. But in the same time, I guess the breadth of experience and the breadth of uh, variation and variety that you get from that in, in a way, if you are that type of person that is basically... Uh, is, is starving for that type of experience. You are basically getting what you're what you're asking for. Would you Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. I think the experience you get from a top tier consultancy is unprecedented. It's it's something. It's hard to equate to anything else I've worked on. It's a very different scale and working with customers, there's a level of expectation already when you get on sites that's very different to if you were contracting or something else. It's a different thing because you're not only representing yourself, you're representing an organization. So this, the, the level of experience that's expected of you starts off with that and you do get thrown in the deep end a bit which some people are good at some people might prefer different sides and there's no right or wrong I think when it comes to working in a big consultancy the most the biggest thing I probably learned in it was to rely on on your network and to make a network because that's the most important thing is you you're surrounded by a bunch of people that know stuff that have been there longer than you, whether it's knowing about Salesforce, whether it's knowing about the organization or knowing about how just IT delivery, you learn so much from the people around you that it's, it's completely worth it. Even if you're only doing like a year or two in that space, you learn, you learn a lot. Yeah. Now, jumping over to, to the solution architect side is if you were to explain to someone what that actually means, how would you encompass that? And I, and I do understand there are probably different tiers to that in terms of are you, are you designing the solution or are you in a position where you need to also know the business side of how it links to different systems and all of that? How would you write a job spec for a solution architect for someone to understand is okay, well, these are probably areas that I will fall as, as responsible for in a way. I think solution architecture is catch-all, which is a strange thing because some it's a role that has different descriptions in some places than other places. I know even just working in different companies, the way that they see a solution architect is quite different. But my understanding of it now is very much, it's a people management come business understanding or functional understanding cross 
a technical understanding. You've, you're finding a hotspot in between all those three things where you are high level enough that you're pulling pieces together and setting a vision, but you still rely on, on people that are very more low level or more specialized in those areas to get to the pieces. So I might not be as involved anymore in the low level technical design of a, of a solution, which is hard to step out of, but you will put the pieces together to start that. So you would have those conversations with business um, on a higher level with, with key stakeholders on, on a customer site where they're putting their vision together and you're trying to help them to understand what products they'll need, how that fits into their system landscape, what integrations they would use and what licensing they might use and, and building that relationship with them to become a trusted partner in building that vision of how all the parts put together and then you rely on your teams to actually go go off and 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 get the low level design that makes sense so you need to understand enough of it that you're not proposing something that's not even going to work because that's that's the scary part is you're proposing things on a very high level without a lot of detail so it, it does take it's a bit of questioning and also understanding the platform you you do need to have that breadth of knowledge but it's 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 more about putting the pieces together and relying on a team to actually give you the, the very detailed spec that you can then get into those as you go into delivery, I suppose. Something that something that you mentioned around the key areas of responsibility that a solution um, uh, architect may, may deal with, and, and you mentioned people, you mentioned business. I would want to flip that um, the other way and say, in terms of the team that you that is supporting you, how what does that timeline look like in terms of you engaging with different parts of your team? So presumably you and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you would support pre-sales uh, in terms of those those early stage discussions, and then later down the line, you'll probably engage with a, a more a more technical architect in a way, in case it's that side of the project, and then you'll build a, a config team or development team. How does that timeline look like for for an average-ish type of project? Um, so it's a bit tricky because. So if we're talking about something that comes in from like a pre-sales point of view, then, and then working your way through. So pre-sales will come in or it's an RFP or something along those lines. And you're building out that solution. It's very high level because you don't have the details at that point. I think, I think you're already engaging someone technical. So I know in most of the places I've worked, you've already got your technical leads involved in that discussion. They might not be full-time working on pre-sales but you you've got to have you've got to have technical support right from the get-go unless you are someone who is also very technical a unicorn person that has a full breadth of you you do get those people who are who have a lot of knowledge across all of it my technical knowledge is not super deep so i i do have some development knowledge i know how to read code and things like that but i'm not a developer i don't come from that background so I do rely on, on making sure that my solutions have been reviewed or things that I think that would work just to make sure that it's someone who has a lot of breadth of technical knowledge can look at it and say, yes, that actually makes sense. So I would involve them as early on as possible in that process, even if it's just a reviewing, a reviewing piece. But essentially, yeah, you do pre-sales, you move into that. And then once, once that becomes an actual project, you, I, I'm upfront, have as many people involved as possible from the beginning type of person. I think 
that the more people who understand the business as in your project team, the better things are. You, you want to share knowledge. I believe in the whole T-shape resources where everyone's getting a view of everything, especially in agile environments. I think um, in the projects, the, the, the hardest part that I find with most projects I've been on is actually the engagement between the project team and the customer or the end users or the product owner, whoever it is that is from the business side. That engagement is the most important because I find that the consulting partner or the development team tends to get along well, especially in a Salesforce ecosystem, because we all have this common love of this platform. Salesforce has this thing about it that everyone just understands. So we all get along well. I think the, 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 the thing comes in when you're trying to engage with business and make sure that they're on the same page and understand the business side of things and engaging with different work streams is where things become a little bit tricky and that you have to try and get get in on early you have to involve everyone and make everyone feel like they're part of a team rather than it just being salesforce and whatever integration team you've got and whatever downstream system you've got and building these little silos you so to avoid that is is probably the the biggest part um, that i find when you start moving into delivery yeah now you mentioned something there that uh, jumped jumped out and eventually like an RFP, so that would be like a, a request for propo- for proposal. Now I haven't actually asked you this before, so in case uh, in in case you do not have experience with that, we can we can probably talk uh, and, and see what comes out of it. But basically, what I was going to say in terms of RFP, so whenever you you're not really fronted with a set of detailed requirements versus potentially like a public tender, whenever you have a list of requirements that mostly probably in public sector, uh, it's like central government and all that, they will have you know a hundred and something questions around solution must be cloud based or something like that, even something as simple <laughs> or more detailed. How do you support that? What is the difference between that? Because what I'm thinking is whenever you deal with an ITT where it's it's you have those questions from the client you know what needs to happen so you have a better understanding of how you should map the solution the resource requirement potentially versus something that you are potentially dealing with a private sector client where you're making a a type of sale before you actually map the solution so it's the other way around uh Mm. what's your view on that i haven't worked much in the um, public RTT side of things, to be honest. So most of the RFPs I have worked on are all the high level, as you say, they're almost like fluffy. It's, <laughs> it's like you don't really understand the detail. I think the way I deal with it is assumptions. Assumptions are probably the most important thing in my life as a solution <laughs> architect is making sure that every decision I make based on the picture I'm building in my head has a set of assumptions that back that up because I want to know that if I go to a customer or even in the middle of delivery, actually anything, and you say to them, these are my list of assumptions, they can say, no, that's, well, that's not right. And then you can backtrack and change things and and fit things in. But it's a, a list of assumptions is the easiest way to know whether you're down the right track. And there's standard ones that you know you always start with, which is like whether integration is in scope or out of scope, whether data migration is in scope or out of scope, who, who owns the requirements, who doesn't, there's all those standard um, assumptions, but then there's also very specific assumptions for your product, like what licenses are you using? What products are you using? Um, are you going to use field service lightning? Are you going to, I don't know, use MuleSoft uh, 
Salesforce for Outlook. You can you can make a, several assumptions in a in an end to end solution, and just making sure that you you note all those down, and that you verify them as soon as you can. So most RFPs will have a question period where you can send some question response. So the quickest the quicker you get an end to end vision of what your solution looks like, the quicker you can put down what those questions are to your assumptions to try and and test those and then build further. Something that you mentioned around assumptions and and noting things that are are out of scope and and potentially things that are in scope, I guess. Mm. You mentioned a few in there. Is there anything else that you would add to that? And potentially that comes down to to everything gets cleared out when it gets to like statement of work stage. But what are things that you are making sure that you're putting them there out of scope because they haven't been mentioned? Because at one point in time, you've probably been caught that you haven't put them there and, and now out of the seven requirements. <laughs> yes. Data migration. I will say that first time every time because data is one of those things that is, it's underestimated in even now, even now when it's quite obvious that data is the most important thing. Data is, especially when you're working in a consulting industry, your clients products change over time. Their data is their only IP. It's their stuff. It's the most important thing, how it's presented, where it goes, what system it's in, doesn't matter. The data is the most important thing. And it's not a very sexy conversation. So people don't really like to talk about data or data migration, but it's the the very fundamental part of any project. So that's always one of my first assumptions is that's out of scope unless told otherwise. And then we need to get into those details. So it's one of the first things you, you check in Greenfield. It might not be as, as big a deal, but when you're, when you're working in a system where you're coming from a legacy system or something like that, it's, it's usually a very big piece of the puzzle. Integration is the other one. It's also a very open-ended part of the, the landscape. Testing whether how far are you going with your testing are you as a as a consulting partner or you as a person go whatever when you're responding to rfp are you responsible for the end user testing are you responsible for your end-to-end testing are you just doing the unit testing for salesforce so specifying the different the different phases of testing and, and where what responsibility lies and then i think calling out business responsibilities so i can build you whatever you may need but until i really understand what you need and i need your time for that i need i need your requirements i need to understand what it is that you're looking for not just what you want but what you actually need and i need i need your time i need the user's time i need your customer's time um, to build that in as well is important because if if they're not expecting to spend any time which is is common they just want to say yes cool we're going to pay for this and you go off and do your thing but then you need it's a constant um, iterative process with the business and you need to make sure that they're they're aware of that perfect the last thing that i was going to ask from my side is in terms of the community and in terms of of your picture on on where is this going we did mention and to be honest while starting this podcast i've had so many good conversations (laughs) and and the most common thing that i hear is first thing is accidental admin uh, And the second thing is that everyone loves the, the community and feel welcomed. What I wanted to, to get your input on is where do you think this is going? Salesforce has grown a lot in the last eight, nine years that I've been involved. It's always been a very inclusive environment, which I think is, is there 
I think that's what makes everyone feel like they belong regardless of where you are is you there's there's always someone like you like no one is alone in this ecosystem there's it's a very diverse ecosystem especially for the IT industry there's it's diverse in, in every possible way you can think of. And Salesforce is an evangelist for that. They are very eager to have a diverse system, but it also just is naturally the way it is because of how the system was built and concept of point and click. And there's just no, I don't know. I, 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 I've always tried to quantify why it is that way, but I think everyone feels like they own a chunk of it and they're part of something and they're, everyone I've spoken to, it always feels like that. Where's it going? I don't know. I think, I think that's going to remain. I think it's only going to get bigger. I think it's getting more inclusive in the sense that the system is growing to be more open, open in terms of source code and all kinds of things. So the way that they're, they're working with other tools and other, other environments, I think people, more people are going to know what Salesforce is and how it works. So I think it can only improve the relationships you have at, for me specifically as a consultant or working with a, an SI partner is you, when you're at a client, you're dealing with your Microsoft teams and you're dealing with integration teams that might never have, you know, they, they know what Salesforce is because it's big enough, but they don't really necessarily know the breadth of the Salesforce platform, how it works. And I think that the more Salesforce grows and the more the ecosystem grows, the more everyone becomes aware of, of, of the platform and feels a little bit of a, a little bit of part of it, which just only makes the whole process easier. Yeah. Salesforce itself is having better relationships with places like Apple, Microsoft. So that just increases that whole collaboration across the spaces. Even you working at the moment, I'm working in a, in a customer, we're doing like a mobile app, custom mobile app and Salesforce implementation. And then you're talking about things like how you're going to work with Apple and how you're going to do these sort of things. And everyone just knows, even though they don't have necessarily a Salesforce background, they know things. And I think it, creates this collaborative space which is only beneficial to everyone thank you for your time thank you for sharing uh, your, your background story and, and also some of the advices that you put out there in case people want to reach out are you a social media type of person I try to be. I think I, sometimes I want to be, but I never really am, which is a problem. So I am on Twitter and I am on, on LinkedIn, but I never really speak much on Twitter. I'm like one of those lurker people who are always on social media, but don't post much. We'll put the LinkedIn in the show notes. So in case people have genuine requests, they'll hopefully be Of course. Thank you for listening to the SFDC Consultant Podcast. Be sure to visit sfdcconsultant.com to access the show notes, and discover additional content. If you enjoyed the podcast, it would be amazing if you could subscribe, give us a review, and share it with your peers. Until next time, take care.